Good morning, everyone. Uh, for those that don't know, my name is Pastor Matt Vandervin. So nice to meet you. And again, welcome to Calvary Chapel. For those that I do know, you know, I'm going to start off by saying I love you all. And I love everyone that's here. You know that. My heart is to, uh, again, wish all the fathers a happy Father's Day. And I always tease my wife. I say, even when it's Father's Day, it's Mother's Day. Because my wife is uh, just a wonderful, uh, godly woman. And I know all the women here are wonderful, godly women. And fathers are helpmates. How about it, right? God, God bless our helpmates, because they're amazing. <laughs> Fathers, if you did not grab one of these, please grab one. They're in the lobby table in the back there, okay? Uh, the, this is a gift for you. It basically is a little devotion that we wanted to give you that goes through. And, you know, the family's under attack today. I don't think I'm telling any of you anything you don't know. I think we're all pretty aware of that. Uh, and it's, it's unfortunate that we're aware of that, because the enemy will stop at nothing to, to divide and conquer. And fathers, it is so important. You've been trusted, I've been trusted with the greatest privilege of all, and that is to instill the word of God into the children that he's entrusted you with. And whether you're a father or you're an uncle or you're a grandfather or you're a nephew or anybody that's a guy, there's someone that you can pour your heart into that's a young child or a child that needs the love of Jesus Christ. And maybe their earthly father wasn't the right experience for them. Maybe they don't have good fond memories. We draw them to God, our Father in heaven, where every day we celebrate him. Amen? So I just wanted to sort of make sure we, we had our hearts right in that aspect. Um, another note, tonight there will be no prayer. Uh, Sunday night prayer, we'll have a time of gathering for the fathers to be with your families and or your, your families like that. So please enjoy that time as a family. As I just mentioned, family is important. And also, Ruth Ann, uh, many of you have been praying. She was home um, briefly, and um, she's back in the hospital now. They're not entirely sure what's going on. She was in, you know, she was in excruciating pain from the accident, but uh, they were giving her medicine, and they, you know, she, you know, like a lot of us, wanted to go home where you could be a little more comfortable. But uh, her blood pressure began to drop, and they rushed her back to the hospital last night, I think it was, and... Uh, so I'd ask everyone here to please continue to keep her in prayer and give wisdom to the doctors. Uh, they don't know if it's a clot or what's going on. On Monday, they're going to be doing a series of tests uh, to find out exactly what's going on there. But please lift the family up. Please lift uh, Steve and Tammy up. As uh, you know, when one of us are hurting, when one of us is sick, we're all, we're all struggling that way. So let's just continue to lift the body of Christ uh, and lift Ruthann up. Amen. All right, open your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 19. We've come as far as Acts chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and one of the ushers will bring you a Bible. So if you do not have a Bible and you're here this morning, we want to get a Bible in your hands. It's yours to keep. Uh, looks like we need maybe one. No, we're one right two back here, please. Um, we want, and please, this is your Bible now to keep. We want to, the Lord Jesus Christ wants you to have it. So, uh, as we everyone's turning your pages or your electronic apps, so I can't tell if you're there or not because they're silent. Again, I still think they should make an, a, a sound for that. As we get to Acts chapter 19, you know, we're on um, Paul's third missionary journey here, right? We've been following along with Paul. We've been privileged to kind of read line by line and verse by verse as we've been going. We've gotten to the point of where 
He continued really in verse 10 there for two years so that those who dwelt in Asia, right, heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks, speaking of Ephesus, right? He's been in Ephesus and he's been doing that. And then we saw something very unusual. We talked a little bit about it last week. Very, very unusual in verse 11 and 12, where all of a sudden, uh, he, you know, Paul was a tent maker. So what does that mean? He worked with leather, right? He would be out there, he'd be sewing leather. He would work with tents and different things like that. That was the way he actually provided for himself as he co-labored in Ephesus. Uh, we know certainly in other places that God had provided for him and provided in all ways. But in Ephesus, he felt the Lord put it on his heart that he was to co-labor there. So while he was laboring there, he'd be going out. And as you can imagine, in the Middle East, and you're in that area, he'd sweat often, right? So he, we know he had a handkerchief that he would tie around his head, as you can imagine, you're sweating, and or he would wear an apron. And as part of the apron, at the end of the day, you know, a long day like that, he'd be sweaty, and he would take that off, and he would lay it down. Well, someone, and I bet, you know, look, when we get to heaven, we can sit there and say, well, Paul, is this exactly how it went down? I don't want to presuppose, but I guess I'm going to this morning. Forgive me, and Paul, forgive me if I'm wrong. But what I think possibly happened is that I don't think Paul was endorsing this. I don't think Paul said, hey, you know, buy a bandana, and you're going to get healed. And oh, by the way, enjoy the sweat. You know, I, I don't think Paul was ruminating in that in any capacity. I think what happened is that somebody turned around and they, they just grabbed an apron and they walked, maybe even set it down, and there was a person that was either demon-possessed, they were either sick or in some type of infirmity, and while they were standing there, what happened is they recognized that this man was healed, and they began to correlate events. And so what do, they, what do they do? Well, Paul, let me take your apron. Let me take your handkerchief. And they would go, and those that were in need, they would bring the handkerchief, they would bring the apron, and they would lay it down before this person, and they would be made you know, well. They would be healed like that. But Paul, and I love that as we read the scripture, there's nowhere where Paul necessarily endorses it that way. He's not saying go out and buy a holy oil. Or go out and buy a tapestry and then wear that because somehow that's going to bless you. You know, remember, we're in Ephesus. This is one of the crown jewels of superstitious areas in the Middle East. It was prominent. It had a prominent marketplace. There were sorcerers, magicians. There were, uh, you know, the occult there. They were, they were obviously pagan, idolatry worshiping. So when they would see these things, for them, believe it or not, they actually were a customer comfortable to it. They, they weren't caught off guard. But, but the Holy Spirit's gonna you know, clearly tell us there in verse 11, let's, let's actually just read it again. Now God worked unusual. If you have a pen and paper, circle that in your Bible, please. Unusual miracles. We do not see God doing this, nor is this something that's a pattern that he's called us to follow, Right? So it was an unusual miracle by the hands of Paul so that even the handkerchiefs of aprons were brought from his body to the sick and to the disease left them and the evil spirits went out of them. So again, we don't really see Paul endorsing this this way. Who did the healing? God, Jesus Christ did the healing, right? Like I said, I bet Paul went, huh, look at that. You know, I, I'm, I'm sure he might've been even caught off guard by it. He, he didn't, you know, he didn't necessarily know nor we told in the words or the white spaces between the lines in the Bible that tells us anywhere that Paul knew exactly what he was doing. But the people in Ephesus, being so superstitious, what do you think they did? They wanted to turn it and take it and say, I need the handkerchief. 
Now, as we're going to read on here in our text for this morning, 13 through the end of chapter 19, the rest of our text for this morning, this is going to build upon what we see because we are going to be introduced to these Jewish exorcists. Right Now, that's not uncommon even in Ephesus. At that time, as you know, when I was teaching through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, like that, we talked about what the tradition was for a Jewish exorcist. They were very patterned or formulated, you know, form, um, what I want to say, patterned, I guess, or some type of formula driven. In other words, they believed that if you were going to exercise a demon or cast a demon out of a, a, a person that way, a non-believer, right? Because we know believers cannot be demon-possessed. So an unbeliever that way, that you had to say or speak the name of the demon. You also had enchantments that we, we would use that term today or things that you had to do to cast out this demon. And this is what they would teach. And if you go back to the Jewish writings or the rabbinical writings, they actually have it written down. These are the things that if someone is demon possessed, this is what you are to do to cast out that demon. Okay. So you're dealing with a superstitious people in Ephesus. You're dealing with Jewish exorcists that also believe in patterns and formulas. They just saw an unusual miracle, draw the conclusion, where are they going to go from here? They're going to turn around and see this and they're going to say, you know what? It's by this Jesus. See, they don't know Jesus, but it's by this, the definite article, the indefinite article, excuse me, Jesus, this Jesus, the Jesus, this Jesus in his name, we'll cast this out, or the Jesus that Paul speaks about. You see what that does? That immediately creates a distance. It's not my God. How many of you, when you pray, and I, I don't necessarily need to show a hands, but when you pray, Father, Abba, Daddy, or my God. I know many times when I'm counseling, or I'm swearing, my God and our God, you know, I, I have to stop and think, our God, sorry, you know, forgive me, my God. It's very personal to me. It's very personal to you, isn't it? He's your God. He's your Lord. He's your Savior. He's your Master. We're His servants. Dulos in the Greek, bondservants. So as we read this, hopefully this sets up the context of what we see here and the response. And I think the miracle of miracles isn't this unusual miracle that we see here, but it's the miracle of the believer that as all of this goes on, those that even believed they were walking in the spirit realized there were things they were holding on to. That's what we're going to read about in the rest of chapter 19. There were things they held on to and were still practicing and they hadn't let go. And there comes a point of conviction, but the conviction was by the Holy Spirit, not by a man. And through that conviction, they decide they're going to lay this all down. They're going to give it all up. What a beautiful testimony to spiritual maturity. What a beautiful testimony to letting God work in the hearts of his people and not trying to lather it up or work it up or somehow contrive it. Amen? So let's, let's read on here in verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, we exercise you by the name or by the Jesus who Paul preaches. Also, there was seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish, uh, the Jewish chief priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. 
Now, if some of you begin to get a little smile, and I looked up and I saw some smiles on your face, you want to chuckle. We'll talk a little bit about this. I can't help it. I get to this text, and a part of me is like, hey, sober-minded. This is a spiritual battle. We need to be real. And then I get to the naked part, and I kind of laugh because I can only imagine witnessing this and these people seeing this and these guys running hightail out of there going, did you see what just happened? You know, they have no clue what just happened. And it was a wake-up call, right? A wake-up call. So as I mentioned already, the Jewish exorcists, they were, they themselves practiced a lot of superstition and and ceremony, right? So what are they going to try to do here? What did we just read in verse 13? They're going to try to imitate. That's very important. Because everything we see that represents evil in scripture, scripture, excuse me, is an imitation. We have Jesus Christ. We have God the Father and God the Son, right? Or God the Son, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We'll get that right, excuse me, right? You with me? What do we have? The unholy trinity, right? An imitation or a substitute, if I could say it that way, never as good as the real thing. You have the antichrist, right? You have the devil, right? You have the antichrist and you have the false prophet or false witness that way. Do you see that it's just an imitation of what God has done and has established? And you know what's interesting is there are people that will take the devil and or God, and try to put them on the same level. Have you ever done that? That where, where you've heard or seen people take God the Father and the devil and say they're like, uh, you know, they're foes against one another, but they put them on the same parallel, on the same, you know, horizontal plane. And that's, obviously that's wrong, but let's talk about why that's wrong. Was God a created being? No, absolutely not. Was the devil a created being? Yes, he was. He was a angel, a cherubim, we're told, right? He was a worship leader. He stood in the presence of God in a very special place like that. Isaiah 14 tells us that he said, what? I will be like the God most high. He declares it five different times. Yesterday in our men's group, some of the men, we got together and we were talking. It was a wonderful time. I invite you to come out to our next men's group. They're at nine o'clock on a Saturday, third Saturday of the, week, of the month. Well, as we were gathering, one of the gentlemen, one of the guys, you know, as we're there and we're studying the word and we're going through that, uh, he comes up, he says, you know, it's so interesting to me to think that I could be in the presence of the Lord or to think that Lucifer could have been in the presence of the Lord like that and then t- turned around and did what? Said, you know what? I can do it better right? Or, or could actually deny or say, I will be like God. And yet he's a creation. But then I sort of opened it up to the group and looked around. I said, but, but guys, how many of you had a, a boss at, at the job, at, 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 you know, at your job, wherever you might, you know, labor like that? Most people said, yeah. How many of you have watched your boss, maybe when he's out on a vacation and you've begun to think, hmm, I'll step in and fill in. Sure, I'll help out. And you fill in and things go well. And you turn around and he steps back in. And now you have some reference to how things are done. And in your mind, what do you begin to do? If we're being real, what do you begin to do? You start thinking, guess what? I can do that. I can do his job. Now, I know none of you saints in here have done that. It's just me, right? 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 Yeah, no, we've all done that. We've all looked in our flesh and said, I could, is it any different than what Lucifer did with God? Be real. Be honest. We have all done that. We've all done that. 
And to think that God is so loving and so gentle, it actually represents part of his character that when we see that and think about it, because when God stood there and Lucifer chose, he had free will, he chose to fall that way, to deny God, to think that he could do it. And what did God do? God allowed his creation, his creature, his, an angel that was so close to him, a cherubim, there's different ranks of angels. A cherubim like that to fall. And not only that, but then we know he goes where? To and fro, accusing. And God doesn't just go and wipe him out. You know, I've wondered, is God praying there would be a repentance there? Or has God given him over? You know, I ask that, and I don't have that question. I, I can't answer the heart of God in that. But I do know that I was a sinner and I was lost. I do know that I did a lot of evil things. I did a lot of bad things. And I do know that probably people looked at me and said, this guy's a drunk. This guy can't do anything. He's not going to be good for nothing. And they wrote me off. But it took one man that loved Jesus enough to see Jesus Christ in me. And how many years later, now I stand up and I have the privilege. I'm, 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 still, I'm still disqualified. I mean, I'm, I'm not disqualified, I should say, but I'm, I'm inadequate. But that's why we know God is leading this church. Not this knucklehead, right? I say that because how many of us here have looked at people in our lives. Some of you are laughing, going, yeah, he is a knucklehead. How many, praise Jesus, because we glorify God for that. And I don't care, I don't care. I want Jesus to get the glory. Amen. How many people turn around low and can honest, be honest before us this morning? This is important. God's gonna show us this through this text because imitation's no good. How many people can honestly say here that you've not looked down on somebody else because of their past afflictions, past tribulations, past decisions, past choices, and thought that person could never be saved. Or, you know what, we need to write that person off, give up on them. Many of us wouldn't be here this morning, would we be? Jesus' love is unending. Paul, walking in the spirit of God, his love in this chapter is unending the way God had given it to him. So as we continue reading on here, or as we look back at this, I mean, the Jewish extras, they failed because they had no personal relationship with Jesus. You see, they only knew that Jesus was the God of Paul, but not their own God. And I have to imagine there's probably somebody here like this this morning. You've come to church because it's part of tradition or it's what you've done your whole life. You walk into this building, you know my God, you know the God of the pastor, Jesus Christ. You might know the God of your parents, Jesus Christ. You might know the God of a relative, but he's not your God. Maybe he's, you've made him you know, your savior, but there's no lordship there. He says Lord and savior. Even the demons believe, but is there a lordship issue? And I believe many churchgoers today, and I know this is going to be heavy here, I believe many churchgoers are going to end up in hell. Because they're going through the motions and they don't know it. 
because they go through a tradition, they walk into a church, and they think by attending church, somehow they're going to get saved. And that may very well be by the word of God, but what saves them is not attending church, but the word of God that changes their heart. It's truly what changes them is Jesus Christ. It's by his name alone, by him alone, that we believe and are saved. It's a personal relationship. It's not religion. It's, it's not religion. We need the Jesus of our own salvation. Verse 15, it says, And the evil spirit answered, said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? you see, I, I don't know if you're taking notes. There's some things here that I think are, are heavy and real. I mean, the evil spirit knew exactly who Jesus was, didn't he? And he knew exactly who Paul was, didn't he? But he didn't know who these seven sons of Sceva were. Well, first of all, God is real, and there is a devil. A third of the angels fell. We know that. Now, we know there's no angel machine up there where God is popping out angels every moment. Angelology. We don't have time to go through it all, but there is no angel machine. It says even in the beginning of creation that there were days, that six days specifically, in which all that we understand and know were created. And angels were on one particular day of that creation as part of that, the heavens and what have you. And after that, it also, we can read in other areas of the Bible that it tells us that for every person that would live or for the time of all of life, in other words, not just, you know, the six days in which God created the angels, but humanity. That if it's true and there are angels that are assigned as principalities and powers to not they're not principalities of powers, are over the principalities of powers of that area, Ephesians 6, demonic forces, and that they're angels that have ranks and that they're over there. And if a third of them fell, there must be billions or trillions of angels. Therefore, some amount of, wow, number of fallen angels exist. And what do they do? They're not like God who can see all and know all. They see and operate by watching. That's why some people go to these occult practices and they, they turn around and see a horoscope reading or they see someone read a tarot card and they tell them about a loved one. You might remember in the Bible when Saul had actually gone to just such a person. Who was the prophet? Samuel. And what did they do? He wanted Samuel to be raised from that so he could ask Samuel a question, right? The arrogance of that. And God allowed it. And I do believe that was actually Samuel. God allowed it in that particular circumstance. But I believe most of the time, that's not what happens. Most of the time, what ends up happening is these demonic forces, these people are demon-possessed. And what happens is they turn around and they call upon these demonic spirits. Now, I just mentioned they don't know. Bible tells us they're not all-knowing. Only God is omniscient that way, all-knowing. But how long have they been alive? Creation. We, that's why I mentioned in the beginning, the creation. They're in six days. Okay, so they've been watching, haven't they? Have you ever watched somebody over a period of time? Maybe your children, child, and begin to, I don't want to use the word predict, but begin to say, well, I know Jimmy, Johnny, Susie happens to be more like this, so, you know, we got to watch this situation, right? And it's not that you're, you know, discerning necessarily at that moment using the gift of discernment, but what you do see happening is you're watching and you're coming to a, a conclusion based on what you can see and understand. 
Well, the demonic forces much the same way operate, but they have actually been watching generation after generation. So when someone comes to them and say, how is your mother doing? Or tell me what my mother's name is. And you sit in front of somebody that's demon possessed, which I pray nobody has any business doing anything with the occult in here as a born again believer in Christ. But if somebody went to that and you hear a story about how they're turning around and they're telling or fortune telling or foretelling what will happen or who that person in their family member was, there's nothing super, I mean, supernatural, but there's nothing really extraordinary. All they're doing is tapping into the demonic realm, which that demon was there able to watch five generations ago and say, your mother's name is Susie Smith. She liked walks on the beach and oranges. Every morning. It's, it's not something we can't explain when we begin to understand there is a spiritual realm. And what we read here in the Bible, there's no reason we should in any way symbolize this. This is a literal teaching. There were seven men. These were Jews, Jewish chief priests or priests that way. They went in and they were trying to cast out demons, but they didn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They had no relationship. The demonic forces in no way respected them, actually didn't even care about them. Why do you think they didn't care about them? Because there was no threat. They were, in, you know, they were indifferent to Jesus, so they were of no threat. You ever see people wide up? First of all, there are no good people, right? We know that all have fallen. We're all wretched, all fallen for sort of the glory of God that way. All, all have sinned, excuse me. We know there are no good people that way. But, but you've watched where people who have tried to live their lives in a good way, bad things will happen to. And then we've seen the converse of that. People who try or don't necessarily care about living according to any type of morality, right? Things seem to just go well for them. And I would suggest to you that part of the reason for that is on a spiritual plane is that just like we learned from this scripture here, the mnemonic forces are not worried about the people that are putting themselves on a shelf because they're indifferent. They're not engaged in the warfare of this life. They've taken the cares of this world. They've taken mammon. They've taken fill in your idol. And they've said, that's what I worship. And therefore, Jesus Christ said, but I want you to know as my disciples, there will be tribulation, there will be oppression, there will be affliction. Don't be surprised. And often I kind of use it as a checksum. You know what checksum is in math? It's a checking a formula. I want, okay, Lord, I'm walking according to you. I'm in your will. I'm facing a lot of oppression. Check. Right? I'm not surprised by that. Now I also walk in the victory of Jesus Christ, so I'm not also looking for it but I understand it's a reality of my walk of discipleship. This is real. This is real. The spirit knew exactly who they're, but, but it got crazy. And apparently evil spirits, in this case, know Jesus and Paul, and they don't waste their efforts knowing those who aren't really a threat. These seven sons of Sceva. The man whom the evil spirit then did what? He leaped on them, it says. He overpowered them and prevailed against them. Now, this is not funny. Sort of. I have to say that because I do get a little bit of a smirk on my face. I mean, it's serious and, okay, it's maybe a little funny, but you see these seven sons. I mean, no relationship with Jesus, no, no clue, and they kind of go in and they think they're going to say, the Jesus that Paul preaches, by that you come out. 
And the demons are, can you imagine the demons? They're laughing. They're like, you don't even know what you're doing. And what do they do? They whoop them up, don't they? They whoop them up. They fall on them and whoop them up naked. Now, the wounded part is not funny, right? That's not funny when anybody's wounded. But, but he left them naked. And can you imagine? They're running away going, this is real. What, what were they doing before that as charlatans? Right? You, you get the point. I often believe that's what we see today. It's dumb and dangerous to mess with things of spiritual warfare, as though because you wear some superstitious rabbit's foot or lucky charm bracelet, right? The, the occult, the, 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 you know, the demonic realm, it's real. We need to be prayed up. That's why God gave us in Ephesians 6 the armor of God. Now, I know a lot of people don't want to talk about this because, you know, either it's a frightening thing for them. And, and in, in what we're going to read here, it was frightening for them too. But it's real. I, I want to say, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, first of all, because we have young people in here too, you can't be demon-possessed. Nothing can harm you that way. For he who lives in you is greater than he who lives in the world. Nothing can harm you that way when you're a son or daughter of the living God. But when you have nothing living in the house that way, the temple of the living God that he's created for you, even, even Jesus himself, he warned against this. Do you remember? He warned about it in Luke. I'm trying to remember. I think it's uh, Luke chapter 11. Turn there in your Bibles, Luke chapter 11. Let's make sure we got this. I think it's verse 24. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through a dry place, as Jesus speaking, seeking rest and finding none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. So when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through a dry place seeking rest and finding none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. That's again, Luke chapter 11, verse 24. Verse 25 tells us, and when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Verse 26 tells us, then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. What do we learn from that experience? That if a demon leaves a body of an unbeliever and Christ doesn't come to reign into that person, that what will they do? They will go and get some of their buddies, more demonic spirits, and they will do what? Come back and the oppression or demonic possession will be worse than it was to begin with. I can't tell you how many people don't study that in scripture and they go into a foreign missionary land where we see a lot of demonic, you know, the devil in our, in our land in America here, not that we don't see demon possession, we do in this country, but it's not needed because most of this country is believing the, you know, the, the, the lies of mammon. They're caught up more in that and they've, they've made their cares or their indifference their God. And so there's, there's not the seduction that's necessarily needed that way. But in a lot of other countries where there, there's a poverty that we don't even begin to understand in this country, a poverty where there, there isn't a lordship that way, where they're looking to the Lord. What do they turn around and do? They, they see these demonic forces. I mean, Haiti, you go over to Haiti, you can see it. I mean, you can go over to these places. It's real. You can see people that are demon possessed. And you see a lot of times young pastors or young you know, leaders of the church, they'll travel to these countries. You know, uh, We went to um, 
Central America, we didn't really encounter so much. Uh, one man I can think of that I, I was pretty sure was deemed up, but we didn't really encounter a lot of the, the demonic that way. But, but a lot of times you get in these jungles and you see it, and the first thing I do is I pray, Lord, is this person ready to receive you, Jesus? Before I do anything, before I pray, Lord, come out in the name of Jesus Christ, free, you know, before I would even pray anything like that, I'm discerning and asking for the will and heart of God to know I want to make sure the state of that man will be better because he'll believe in Jesus Christ and he'll be exercised of that demon. What I don't want to do is just willy-nilly pray that the man is exercised and then what happens? They, as we just read Jesus' words, and it's real, what will happen? They will come back seven Fold. But we're dealing with the biblical in our generation. They either don't believe in the occult or the affairs of the demonic, or they don't understand the Bible and they don't know how to pray. We need to be prayed up. If you are entering any kind of spiritual warfare and you're coming to someone that you discern and believe you and me, when you meet someone that's demon-possessed and you're in the spirit and you need to, the Lord's going to use you, there's no question. I remember a couple years back, we had a gentleman come in one night late at the fellowship. Andrew was there. They had the teen ministry at night. Steve Walters was there. We were praying. It was like 10 o'clock. We they were concluding the teen ministry. And uh, we're praying. Everything's good. We finish. We walk out. This man comes in. And is you know, 10 o'clock at night, it doesn't matter. God's church is always open, right? Amen. So we come in. There's ministry that needs to be done. So we turn around and, okay, I meet the man. And immediately, I discern there was something. I looked at Steve. Steve was a newer elder at that time. He, he was, you know, he was learning that way. He had never encountered that. He immediately discerned it. He looked at me. I looked at him. We knew right away. So we went into the back room. We began to sit down. And what did we do? We started praying with this individual. Well, excuse me. Let me back up. Before we were going to pray with this, we started talking with this individual. What's going on? And we begin to notice as this individual started getting more and more agitated. Not at us, but in general. Very angry. Started hitting the tables. Can we get you some water? Can I get you something to drink? What can I do? And agitated, angry. The face and everything begins changing. This is what's going on and hitting. And, you know, and I'm thinking de-escalation at the moment, right? It's 10 o'clock at night. You know, it's not like it's 8 o'clock in the morning where we can turn around and we got five or eight hours. You know, I'm thinking de-escalation. So I'm, I'm praying, Lord Jesus, please give me the words to speak. Help me free this man. What do we need to do here, Lord? And I heard God say, don't do a thing. Now, I remember Steve looks at me. He's the elder. He turns around, he looks at me. And I looked at the guy and I said, hey, thank you. Let's get together and pray. We'll come back. We need to have some counseling here. We need to have some conversations because I'm discerning this man's, there's something clearly off. I come out, didn't say a word to Andrew. The teens were obviously dismissing. We want to get safety for the teens. We want to get them out, okay? The whole thing. I turn around, we get in the car. My son, who's never, ever said anything like this to me, he goes, dad, there was something off there. And I said, one son, what did you discern? And he said, well, dad, I, I don't know how to explain this to you, but, but I felt like that man had a gun, or, or I felt like that man was going to do harm. And, and I, there was this coldness. Like, I felt like a cold in the whole room. Something just creepy, like, dripping. I, I don't know how to explain it. And I said, son, start to, start to just pray. I, I knew that, but he had never experienced the demonic. He, he had never seen that. He had not, like I said, he had not gone to a foreign land. He had never seen that. I, I'm, I'm familiar with that, so I, I, I understood well, before we left, even Steve, I remember him coming to me. He says, Pastor, are we not going to pray for that man right now? And I said, the Lord's told me right now we are not to do that. 
And he looked at me, he's like, and then he got it. And he's like, okay. And he started learning there's, you listen to the spirit of God in any moment and wherever you're doing, you trust the spirit of God. When he gives you a leading like that, you obey, you don't question it. There's a maturity that comes along that way. Well, no later, I, Andrew, I think it might've been five, 10 minutes later, he picks up the phone. He had never had an experience like that, if I remember correctly. He picks up the phone and calls his pastor. I know this is gonna sound weird. I love when people start out conversations that way. Pastor, this is gonna sound weird. I'm a pastor, try me. But go ahead, I'm an under-shepherd, try me. So he says, I discerned something. There was something very off there, almost like a cold or starts almost discerning what like Parker kind of, you know, or my son had kind of shared at that moment. And I said, I know, Andrew. I said, start praying. He said, I just want to make sure you know. Because I said, Andrew, yes, you, you, your spirit testifies. You, you did well. You know, praise God. You, you heard the spirit of God. You responded. Praise God. Yes. We're, we're going to be working through that and God will handle this. It's real. What would you do in that experience? What would you do in that moment? Are you prayed up? As Jesus said, you don't wait to the disciples. He told them when they were sleeping in the garden, even when they were preparing for what was going to happen, Jesus, what was he doing in the midst of his trial that was coming? Was he sleeping where the disciples were sleeping or was he praying? He was prayed up. And that's the son of God. He was prayed up. And then what happened? He kept going over to Peter, knowing that he was going to face his own trial very shortly thereafter. Remember denying him three times? And he said, Peter, don't sleep, pray. He says, can't you even stay awake for even an hour? That tells you the power of prayer. There are things going on that we don't even understand in the spiritual realm. These men that day began to understand there is a spiritual realm. Well, obviously they ran out of there, you know, and what we see out of this in, in verses 17 there, and this became known both to all the Jews and the Greeks dwelling in Ephesus and the fear fell on them. Circle that in your Bible. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified and many who had believed came to confession or confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. So obviously this incident of the sons of Sceva here, it opened the eyes of the people to the reality of the demonic realm, the spiritual realm. It made them fear the Lord, didn't it? It made them fear the Lord, and it also made them fear the demonic. I think both in healthy ways, right? As a result, the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Again, previously, Ephesus was a stronghold of Satan. Remember that? We talked about the occult and all that had gone on there. Many evil, superstitious, satanic practices, books containing, there was a scholar I looked up, uh, Gabriel, he began to talk about how they had formulas for sorcery and ungodly and forbidden arts were plentiful in that city. And as, as a result, we read, who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. That means those are believers at this point. Those who had believed, they're believers at this point. Apparently, before the Sons of Sceva incident, many believers maybe didn't understand what was going on in the occult or, or the demonic realm. Maybe there's somebody here this morning. This is the first time you've heard teaching on the spiritual battles in the spiritual realm. Maybe you didn't realize the reality of it. But again, there's nothing to fear that way if you're a born-again believer in Christ. 
If you're not a born-again believer in Christ, we should talk. You need to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But maybe they were involved in some type of demonic activity or the occult. Now, I want to give a quick, a quick caption here in verse 19. You see that it says that they began to burn books and, you know, and they gain, you know, gather in the site and they're doing it. I, I just, in the days we're living, I have to give a caption on this because verse 19 is not endorsing any type of governmental approval of burning books or sanctioning any type of revisionism because we saw that under Hitler in Nazi Germany where he had everybody brought out the books and then take away the weapons, the guns, and everything from the people, and then they could lord over the people like Nicolaitans, that Jesus says, he I says, I hate the Nicolaitans, those that lord over the people. That in no way is giving anybody or any government the ability to come in and burn all of your books. This was an individual's decision. The believer decided and was convicted that the books they had that had these occult practices in there they were the ones that bought the books together and they burned them in the sight of, the, of everyone there. What were they doing? They were renouncing anything that had to do with the demonic, anything that had to do with idolatry. They were renouncing it. They were getting rid of it. You know, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter nine. A few books back to the left. Luke chapter nine, verse 62. Last verse in the chapter of uh, nine of Luke. It says, but Jesus said to them, no one having put his hand to the plow when looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. What does that tell us? That being born again believers, we shouldn't be looking backwards to our old life and the things that we used to do, but we ought to be heaven bound. We're citizens of heaven. We ought to be looking forward. The cross before me, the world behind me. We sing that song and then we conclude it with no looking back, no looking back. Because the, the, the looking back is a temptation. It, it is. It's a form of temptation in our hearts. Looking back to the old ways. Looking back to being able to do certain things. Because you thought some way it was going to be sweet. Sin is sweet for a time, but a very short time till it stings and becomes bitter and consumes. We're not to be looking back that way. How about Luke chapter 14, since you're already in the book of Luke. Look at Luke chapter 14. Let's look at verse 33. What about those that were like these disciples in Ephesus that were holding something back? Maybe there's some of us here this morning. Notice I said us. I don't discount my own heart. I don't trust my own emotions. My emotions can betray me. I trust the living God in his word. I run my life through the grid of scripture. And I have to examine my own heart. Every one of us is called to do that. But Luke chapter 14, verse 33 says, So likewise, whoever or whomever, however you want to say that, of you does not forsake all, circle that, all, then he cannot be my disciple. That's heavy, isn't it? That's heavy, man. If you're looking back or there's something you're holding on to and you're like, man, God is saying, let it go because it's gonna tear you apart. It's for your own protection. You're trying to hold on what's in the past and holding on to that and you're being stretched like that. It's gonna rip you apart. 
The only thing you should think of when you're like this is the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's looking forward, not looking back. The cross before me, the world behind me. No looking back, no looking back. One more passage. Go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Giving your little fingers a workout this morning, huh? 1 John chapter 2, let's look at verses 15 through 17. You know, this week, the Lord has really been speaking to me on this passage. He just, he was, he just kept drawing me back to this passage. I, 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 just, I actually, last night, as I was going through my study one more time and praying in the Spirit, asking the Lord, what do you have for your people? What do you have for me? He gave me this path. He says, no, I, you, you need to share this with the people. I, I don't, maybe this is just for me, friends, but maybe there's somebody else here this morning that needs to read this passage, 1 John chapter uh, 2, verses 15 through 17. Maybe you need this encouragement. This doesn't have to be a rebuke. This can be an encouragement. You're doing the right thing. You're doing the right thing. Stay the course. But for others, just like when Paul, through God's moving, and Paul was at Ephesus, and he called these believers to surrender all. Maybe somebody in here is holding on to something in the past. Maybe there's something that you're wrestling with, and God's asking you to lay it down, and you've been looking for confirmation of that. Well, God wants to meet with you here this morning. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, do not love the world or the things, circle that, the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of the life, the, I call it the satanic mixture. It's the Isaiah 14 mixture, Lucifer the tonic of Lucifer, is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. That's a promise. He who does the will of God abides forever. You can turn back to Acts, and we're at our time here almost. So a couple notes and we'll close. It's hard to believe it's already, it goes so fast. What we saw these men do, they renounced, and these women, they renounced the demonic by confessing and burning their magic books, disregarding whatever value it had. Again, apparently these books were full of magic charms, amulets, whatever, incantations. We know that they were very superstitious in Ephesus, whatever it was. I think some people are still superstitious today. The value of this is as it was 50,000 pieces of silver. That would have been valued somewhere between one to five million dollars today. So people put a high premium on that, but God, it was doing nothing but leading pitch, people straight to the pit of hell. Now, I would challenge everyone here this morning as Christians, we must do this today. It's not a governmental conviction. It's not a pastoral conviction. It's an individual conviction from Jesus to the individual believer. No one can force you to do this, nor are they supposed to. This is something you and God need to talk about. You and God need to pray about. You know, what about the books you have? What about the images? Pornography and what have you. Computer files, statues, charms, games, 
whatever else may have a connection to the demonic. I'll also add, if God's telling you to get rid of those things, destroy them. I can't tell you how many people go and they think, well, you know, that's one to $5 million, right? I'll sell them. What are you doing? You're spreading that filth. I'll give you a personal confession. So I want to say it was about 11, maybe 11 years ago. I, uh, I had already been saved at that point, but, you know, much like anybody else, there was a spiritual maturation going on. And I, I was fighting this very thing. I was fighting this very thing. I had DVDs and, you know, all types of things that at that time I, I thought were okay. You know, they, they weren't necessarily, you know, pornography, but, but it had lewd acts. It had things in there. You know, half of the 1980s movies that we don't even remember until we go back and watch them and go, oh, my gosh, I can't believe our parents let us watch that. Right? I don't know if that's happened to you recently. You know, I put on a 1980s movie for my son, you know, the good old day. I wanted to show him that. I got about, you know, 30 seconds. Okay, well, that was good, son. Let me tell you how the story goes. You know, and then you start looking for these cleaners or filters. Well, at that time, I was really wrestling with some things. So um, I remember going home and looking at my wife and saying, well, Lisa, we got to get rid of it all. She said, what? I said, the Lord put it on my heart. I said, we got to get rid of it all. I literally went over to my DVD case. I don't know, thousands of dollars of DVDs and just took a big box and everything that was in any way questionable. This is what the Lord showed me to do. I'm not telling you to do this. This is what the Lord convicted my heart because he knew I was holding on to something. And I just went like this and it went right into a box. And I began to go through in my computer. I wiped the hard drive on one of my computers because I was looking at things I probably shouldn't have been looking at. Well, not probably. I was looking at things God would not have been pleased. If I was raptured at that moment and I was standing in the presence of Jesus Christ, I would have been embarrassed. That's the test. If you appeared before Jesus right at that moment, whatever you're doing, would you find embarrassment? Would you be upset? We came out yesterday in our men's study. We sort of talked about that. Would you be embarrassed? I can't remember one of the guys brought that up. It's great, great, you know, great leading that way. The Holy Spirit. That all went away. Then I looked at this statue. Many of you know I was raised Roman Catholic before I was born again believer. And my grandmother, before she died, had given me this statue. And it was of Mary. I think it was Mary or, G or Jesus. I can't remember, but I had a statue. And, and truthfully, I would pray to that statue. Not that I was praying to this, but I was praying to God. But I would look at the statue as somehow representing that. Exodus chapter 20, for those that remember the teaching in Exodus 20. We're in Exodus 32 on Wednesdays. And I was really torn about that. And so I called Pastor Chuck Smith because I, I wanted to know, you know, what was his heart on the matter? And I had the privilege of speaking with him. And it was actually broadcast on the radio. That's one of the things you want your pastor to hear about, huh? So uh, I, I called Pastor Chuck Smith. And I said, Pastor Chuck, you know, here's the question. Um, you know, he, this statue, you know, what do, what do you think? And he said, well, if you ever met him, well, you know, he's kind of got that draw. Well, well, you know, what does the Bible say? Good answer, Pastor. I said, the Bible says we're not to have anything in heaven or below that's in any type of look, anything that would be like that, anything that would be worshipped that way. Well, I think you have your answer. I said, but that's really hard. He said, again, I think you have your answer. 
I said, thank you for your faithfulness. I turned around and that day I took, I had a watch I used to keep on. I took the watch off because that was my grandmother's watch and I loved it very much. She gave it to me and uh, I got rid of that statue because that statue is not what reminds me of my grandmother. It's the memory that Jesus Christ gave me, the mind he gave me to remember who my grandmother was. And I know one, and in no way did I want to dishonor her. And no way did I want to dishonor Jesus. That was my conviction. I'm not telling you what to do. But the point was, is there was no more looking back. I had made that decision. I made a decision to follow Christ. I put my kids on the altar. I've put my wife on the altar. I put my parents on the altar. I put everything that I hold near and dear on the altar of God and said, Lord, it's all yours. You give it, you'll take. And, but Lord, to you will always be the increase in glory and love. And as I read that, this is what I believe was happening there today. Spurgeon says, you will have enough temptation in your own mind without going after these things. Is there any habit, any practice that you got that defiles your soul? If Christ loves you and you come and trust him, he'll make short work of it. Have you done with it? And have done with it forever. No going back. In verse 20, we see the results, don't we? The word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. There was a revival. And God did the revival by drawing people back unto himself by personal conviction. It began in the individual's heart. That's why often on our prayer nights, what do we pray? Lord, begin a revival. Begin it in our hearts right now. This demonstrates to me that obviously it was worth, worth it all. The work in the region of Ephesus and, and really the region of Asia Minor, Turkey, continued in a remarkable way. And as we've seen in scripture, it's a great spiritual victory. But we're going to read on next week as we go into verse 21. Please read on. Please read. Don't come in on Wednesdays and Sundays and just read your Bible. I'm encouraging and, and, and pleading with all of you, read the word of God every day, morning, noon, and night. Read the word. I'm exhorting you, read the word of God. Read the rest of this passage. Chew on it. Think about it. Selah in the Hebrew. Let it wrestle with your heart. Test it in the light. Bring it through scripture and test your heart in the light of scripture that way to find what is good and the things that'll last and the things that should be burned, wood, hay, and stubble. Because as we're going to see, when God does a work like this, what happens here is it breaks out in a riot. Because afterwards, Demetrius is going to come up and he's going to say, no, what's been going on in this area now, this is a big deal and it's got to stop. It's starting to hurt the pocketbooks. You know, follow the trail of money. Always follow the trail of money. You think for a time and a season, we've been given the privilege to be able to bring Bibles and do these things. And, and there'll come a season when it affects the pocketbook. You know, don't worship a political savior. Worship the savior, Jesus Christ. Let's stand and pray and we'll have a closing song. We didn't get as far as I, I would have liked, but we got as far as God had intended. And, uh, that's important. So go ahead and read. Obviously, that's all that matters. Read the rest of, like I say, verses 21 and on, and we'll conclude this uh, chapter next week and maybe even get into the first half of chapter 20 as the Lord should lead. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we come before you here this morning. 
God, what a word for us this morning here, God. You are so faithful to be present. Your Holy Spirit led here. These are your words, Lord. It's your conviction. It's your encouragement. Lord God, thank you for being faithful to minister to us this morning. Thank you that we don't come here to go through the motions. We don't walk out of here with honeydew, Lord. We walk out of here with truth. That truth that'll sustain us and seal us for all of eternity. And so God, right now, if there's any of us here, Lord Jesus, first of all, that don't know you, God, I pray, if, if there's anybody that's hearing this and praying this with me, God, if, if that's someone here this morning, Lord, they, they would come forward after service and we, I'd pray with them, Lord, and we'd welcome them into the kingdom. That your, your gospel would go forward, Lord Jesus. And for those of us that are believers, Lord, just as we see these believers in Ephesus that needed to get rid of worldly things, Lord, that way, not all things are bad, God, we know that. But the things that we hold on and place in the same category as lordship, the things that we worship that become idols in our lives, that's what you're talking about here, God. You bless us, many of us. You give to us faithfully that we may give unto you. You blessed us with our offering even here today, God. So we know there's nothing wrong, God, inherently with things. It's the worship of these things. So God, forgive us right now. God, forgive me for holding on tight to anything that, Lord, is a distraction. Forgive us as the body of Christ, God. We want to be holy and blameless before you, Jesus. Renew our hearts here. Encourage us. Let us not walk out of here convicted, feeling overwhelmed and down, God. Let us walk out of here encouraged because you've brought change in our hearts and God, we can do something about that. You've drawn us close. You've given us more of you today and less of us. Thank you, Jesus. And may we continue on this walk, Lord, this narrow path until you bring us home. We pray this in your name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people prayed, amen. amen. Let's, praise our, let's praise our Lord with everything that we got.
Jesus, there is no turning back, Lord. As you've commanded us, as we obey, Lord, give us everything. Equip us, God, for the work you've called us to, Lord Jesus, even right now. Baptize us anew, Lord. It's in our humility, God. We don't come to you with any strength. For in our weakness, you are made strong, Father. We know and glorify your name alone, our living God. And right now, Lord, we thank you that it's not works-based. We thank you that it's not of anything we can do of our own. But God, it all points to you. Praise you, Jesus. Keep us, heal us, Lord. Protect us and guide us. As we spend times with families or friends today, or Lord, even in just the company of your spirit, we love you and Lord, may our hearts be with you and your hearts with us. In your name, Jesus Christ, we pray and all God's people prayed. Amen. I love you all. God bless you. Again, happy Father's Day and enjoy the day with the Lord. May he keep you.